I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Warzone Live, live here from the Labour Conference in Liverpool. I'm delighted that today we've got joining us Jonathan Ashworth, the Shadow Secretary of State for Health. He's the man who will be running the NHS under a Jeremy Corbyn government and I'm hopefully going to try and elicit a few answers from him on a, a range of topics, not just health policy but also labour policy and perhaps also we'll get some really good questions from you as well once I've done my bit. The whole point of today is to try and get as much engagement as possible both online and here in the room. So, without further ado, thanks, John, for joining us. Um, the NHS is 70 this year. Mm. Um, now, the government have come up with a 20 billion a year extra funding package. They're talking about a 10-year plan. Is there a danger? You might say it's too little, too late, obviously, but is there a danger that that sheer amount of cash might neutralise Labour's attack at the next general election? No, I don't think so. But can I just start by saying thank you for inviting me uh, to do this event. I've always wanted to appear on a chat show uh, and I've never quite got to appear on a chat show yet so you, if you're in this Michael this Parkinson role, get. this is the closest I'm going to get so, yeah. uh, uh, so th thanks for having me. Um, I mean on your um, question, no of course not, of course not. I mean look, you know the, the Tories were forced to reset the budgets for the NHS in face of tremendous pressure from patients who were fed up of the escalating waiting times, are fed up of seeing their elderly relatives languishing on trolleys in, in corridors in hospitals. But even though they reset their spending plans, for them it was a sort of, um, you know, a kind of PR way of getting over the 70th anniversary of the National Health Service. So every single expert came out and said, it's not enough. I think it was the IFS who said, this settlement is just a standstill budget for the NHS. It's the status quo for the NHS. Well, the status quo means 4.3 million on the waiting list. It means uh, cancer patients waiting longer and longer for treatment. It means mental health services continually continue to be neglected and cut back. Uh, uh, it means uh, A&E crises uh, in winter. You know, so it doesn't neutralise any argument that patient groups and us and the, and the Labour Party are making about the state of the NHS. In fact, I think it exposes the reality that when it comes to the NHS, the Tories don't really have a plan. And the Theresa May has said that taxpayers will need to contribute a bit more. What do you think that means? And, and what would taxpayers have to contribute under Labour's plans? Well, I mean, we set out our plans at the general election about asking the wealthiest in society uh, to pay a bit extra and obviously we'll make different decisions on corporation tax. So we, we had a fully costed manifesto. If John McDonnell was, it, was here, he'd be waving that grey book. I feel uh, as though he's right behind you uh, right uh, grey book around. Uh, it could well be. You know, he's a, he, you know, he gets into all kinds of places as John McDonnell at the moment. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, uh, uh, So we outlined our plans at the general election. It's very interesting that Theresa May has hinted that taxes will have to go up because I think there's lots of Tory MPs who don't feel that they were sent to Westminster to incre increase tax for their constituents. We in the Labour Party have a different, different view of taxation. We think tax, the tax system should be fairer and we should ask the wealthier in society to pay a little bit extra. I'm not sure whether Tory MPs feel the same and of course any tax changes that Philip Hammond has to introduce in his uh, autumn budget, well they have to have the finance bill. They have to be voted upon. And we know Tory MPs are very upset about the squeeze on defence expenditure. We know, uh, 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 the, you know the Home Office budgets, the policing budgets have been cut back. We know Tory MPs are coming under pressure in their constituencies about local schools having cutbacks as well. So I think it's going to be very bumpy for Theresa May on this issue, as it is on all the other issues she's facing as well, of course. So we'll see where we get to. And what do you think is missing from that 10-year plan that the Tories have come up with on the NHS? What are the big items well, we, for you? Well, we haven't got a plan for staffing. We've got vacancies of 108,000 in the NHS. 108,000. We're short of 40,000 uh, nurses and midwives. You know, it was so bad last year in the NHS that 50%, 50% of maternity units 
had to shut their doors at some point to mothers in the throes of labour. Literally saying to uh, women, sorry, you cannot come in here. There is no room at the inn. You're going to have to go 20 miles down the road to another maternity unit, risking uh, going into labour or giving birth at the roadside or in the back of a car because they didn't have the staff in those maternity units. Uh, just this weekend, there was a report about we're so short of pathologists that cancer patients are waiting longer and longer in, in, in anguish and distress uh, um, for their test results. And of course, you cannot proceed with the relevant uh, appropriate treatments unless we know what the outcome of the test results are. And, and you know, it's actually so bad. This is absolutely true. Uh, uh, when the data came out about how short we are of pathologists, uh, the coroners came out. This is true. The coroner, I was listening to a coroner on the radio saying, we're now so short of pathologists that coroners cannot complete their coroner's reports on time because they need a pathologist uh, to be part of the, uh, 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 you know, the decision-making before they can release the body. And this is, ha this is what is happening right now uh, across the NHS because we are so short of staff. And I've just mentioned midwives, nurses and coroners. We know uh, pathologists, we're short of doctors, we're short of uh, healthcare assistants, we're uh, short of psychiatrists, we're, sort of, we're short of consult specialist consultant addiction psychiatrists. Look at every different sector of the NHS and we've got these chronic staff shortages. And there isn't really any plan. I mean, you know, they got, I mean, George Osborne cut the training places early on in, uh, when he was Chancellor, but of course, in recent years, they've just got rid of the nurses' training bursary, and guess what? You know, applications for nursing have plummeted. So there's no plan for, for staffing. There's no sensible plan uh, uh, for funding either. And when it comes to social care, mm. um, the government is supposed to be coming up with a green paper. Yeah. That seems to be much delayed now. Um, what's Labour's current thinking on social care? Do you think that the government are going to eventually come back to something like Andy Burnham's suggestion, uh, the, the one they ridiculed as a death tax in the 2010 general election? Well, I'm not sure if they will, because they said it was a death tax. And, and uh, uh, my new, uh, my new um, opponent, Matt Hancock, uh, uh, he, he, I mean, he's, he's certainly an ambitious man in a rush. Um, uh, uh, you know, he's amused on whether we should be asking people to contribute into a sort of savings-style vehicle to fund social care. So that suggested to me that they're sort of um, taking some, uh, something out of a you know, sort of inheritance tax style uh, system, which Andy Burnham was, was essentially uh, advocating, looks like it's off the agenda. But I mean, they've been at sixes and sevens, haven't they, on, the, on this social care stuff? We'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, Labour's plan is, well, is that we know, we know we've got to stabilise social care immediately. You've had seven billion cut from social care these last eight years. That's what's putting huge pressure on many of our A&E departments, because 400,000 of the elderly and vulnerable in our communities are not getting the social care support they used to get. There's literally a queue to get in the front door of the A&E, and there's a queue to get out the back door of the hospital, if you, if you like. So we'd say put the money in to the, into uh, public social care now, stabilise the system. Our long-term plan is to build a national care service uh, for the future, and then we'll see what they come up with in this green paper on on what vehicles they propose, what savings vehicles, or what changes to the uh, uh, tax regime they propose for essentially um, um, non-means-tested social care, really. Um, now, you've talked a lot about public health cuts under yeah. the Conservatives. Um, alcohol in particular, you've got particular experience of. Um, Alcohol-related harm costs the NHS 3.5 billion a year. I think yeah. it was a 7 billion a year cost to the economy. Um, what, what's Labour looking at in terms of new policies on that, moving on from the manifesto? Yeah, I mean, alcohol uh, addiction is something I've spoken about quite a lot. And, uh, I've spoken about it in extremely personal terms. I mean, I don't know if the audience know if they followed it, but I grew up with an alcoholic father. Um, uh, and I'll you know, talk about that a bit more in a, in a, in a moment. But it seems to me that we are ignoring huge numbers of people in society who have an addiction problem, whether it's alcohol or drugs. I mean, we've got uh, deaths for drug misuse um, are at their highest ever on record. And we looked at the figures recently, and there's something like 600,000 people across the country with an, an alcohol dependency problem not getting any support <coughs> at all, even though they need specialist help. And actually, the numbers in specialist help have dropped by about 12,000 or so these last, last few years. And it's because there's been millions of cuts um, to the alcohol, alcohol and drug treatment services. There's been you know, 
40 million in recent years, another 30 million cuts to come. Uh, and I think we are failing a huge numbers of people because, it, because not only is it wrong for those people, and for someone like me who's in politics to improve pe the people's lives, I think, I think it is, I can't walk by on the other side. Uh, it also, as you've just uh, alluded to, puts huge pressure on the wider NHS. So we'd, we, we would expand drug and alcohol treatment services. We wouldn't be cutting drug and alcohol treatment services. But one of the things I think we need to do also is in hospitals provide more support. Hospitals are actually supposed to provide alcohol treatment um, nursing staff. Uh, each hospital is supposed to have a team of three, and we did an FOI, and actually only around 41 hospitals uh, out of nearly 200 have the full complement. So one of the things that I'm uh, announcing today, if you like, um, uh, as your Shadow Health Secretary, is that a Labour government would fund alcohol treatment nursing staff in hospitals. It would cost about 15 million, but actually there's a lot of academic research that suggests that it would actually save the NHS up to 40 million in the long run. And what these what this staff would do is a 20, it's a 24-hour team in every hospital uh, would support... Every, every hospital? Every, every district hospital yeah. uh, would support those who were admitted with some alcohol-related uh, problem, which, by the way, people being admitted to hospital for alco with alcohol-related conditions is something like 340,000. It's gone up by about almost 20% in the last 10 years, a huge increase. Uh, and it would support those, support those people, make sure they're getting the specialist help that they need, and making sure that when they are... Uh, um, um, a discharge from hospital, they're going on to get specialist treatment and help they need in the community. And there is some evidence that those hospitals who have implemented fully these sorts of teams, uh, that it actually reduces admissions in the future from this, this uh, cohort of people who have got a problem, if you like, uh, uh, reduces bed stays, so you, you know, the number, you know, number of days that people with these issues are in, in beds in hospitals, and it, so it does, have, it does have an impact. And it, you know, for It'll cost 15 million initially, but the academic research suggests it will save 40 million for the NHS. So we are, I'm making that commitment today. We're going to fully fund a proper alcohol treatment uh, complement of the relevant nurses and specialists in every in every hospital. Now you've um, talked about your dad being an alcoholic. Do you want to explain a little bit what it's like as a as a young yeah. kid growing up in a household like that? Yeah, um, I spoke um, I spoke out on this. I wasn't I wasn't um, Funnily enough, really expecting to speak out. And then I sort of blurted it out in an interview once, almost by accident. And then I thought, once I'd said it, I thought, well, you know, sort of in for a penny, in for a pound now. I better, 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 better stick to, you know, tell the full story. And my, my dad was, um, he was an alcoholic. I, you know, my whole uh, life growing up with him was coloured by that alcoholism. Uh, I was an only child. The, the alcoholism led to divorce. And so that, and those days that I lived with my dad, because I'd spend some days a week with my mum, some days a week with my dad, and, you know, it, I, I, as I've said I've, before, I, I remember being picked up from school and, um, uh, you know, he was so, so drunk that he fell over. I remember um, as a child going home, you know, oh, not as a child, a little bit older, you know, as an older, about 10 or so, opening the fridge and nothing in the fridge but very cheap bottles of white wine, these huge big bottles of white wine you could buy from the off-licence very cheaply and I'd have to go down to the sort of corner shop myself and get food and supplies um, for the weekend. The, the, the thing is, uh, in some ways I was lucky. He wasn't violent, he wasn't aggressive. The threat of domestic violence never hung over me like it hangs over some children who are growing up with a parent who has an alcohol problem. If anything, he was quite funny, um, which was part of the issue, because his friends would think, well, what a, what, a, what a great guy, what a life and soul of the party. You know, they'd, you know, they'd think, you know, well, yeah, John Ash, let's have a, let's have a good laugh and a joke with him. So you called John as well? Yeah, it was called John. Um, um, not very imaginative when it comes to naming children, <laughs> I suppose. Um, uh, but for me as a child, it wasn't funny. It kind of, it sort of gets boring, you know, <laughs> when you hear the same jokes and the same stories. But then uh, he, was, he was my dad. Um, so, I, you know, I, I loved him. Um, but the thing that 
broke my heart about it. Wasn't the, um, you know, I just got on with life. You know, you have to get on with life. I think we're more resilient than we sometimes we appreciate. But when I was much older, and I'd uh, moved on and I got a job, um, and, and I, you know, but I, it was a working class background. He was a working class man. Uh, he was a croupier in the in a Manchester casino, and I'll talk, say a moment, touch on that in a second. But the thing that really broke my heart is that many years later, I went off to university. I um, was very determined at university. I got involved in uh, the, labor, the Labour Society and things like that. And I was very, very lucky, immensely lucky. When I left university, I got a job for myself at what in them days would have been um, Millbank Tower working for the Labour Party as a, junior, as a, as a sort of very, very junior researcher. And then, through, then managed to get, did that for a few years, and then managed, again, very lucky, managed to get a job working for um, Gordon Brown. And, it, and you know, the point is, I've worked in politics all my life. You know, and I know that's, you know, politicians aren't so keen on that anymore, you know. Uh, I mean, people aren't so keen on that anymore, but, you know, that's what I've done. I can't pretend I haven't. What broke my heart was that when I got married in 2010, uh, he, he felt that he couldn't come to the wedding because of his alcoholism. Because he felt that I had gone on to a different world now a world of politicians and, you know, well-to-do people, people who had went, gone to university, people who didn't speak like him, you know, used, talked in a different way, talked in different accents, you know. Gordon Brown was going to be at my wedding. He felt he couldn't come to my wedding, his only son's wedding, because he felt he would embarrass me, that he would fall over drunk, that he would say something out of turn, and he just didn't show up. Uh, and at the time, I was so angry, so furious with him, because he was my dad. I was, you know, it's my wedding. I wouldn't, you know, think I'd have cared if he got drunk and fallen over in front of Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown probably wouldn't even noticed. Really. <laughs> um, 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 uh, you know, um, did he give you much notice that he wasn't coming to the about wedding? About two days before. I was so furious. Um, and then I, you know, I just couldn't bring myself to talk to him properly. And then, three months later, he was dead. I got a phone call. He would have been 61. He was 61. Um, and that's what alcoholism does. Yeah. And, you know, I don't say these stories just for the indulgence of, you know, delegates who come to conferences like this, but... There's various estimates, but some estimates suggest up to two million children are growing up with an alcoholic parent. And, you know, we've got to do something about that. We've got to put support in place for them. We've got to help them. Because I was, I was lucky, I was determined. Um, you know, other children who, who grow up in these circumstances, whether it's alcohol or drugs, develop mental health problems themselves, get involved with drinking drugs themselves, do badly at school, I mean... I mean, I became a politician, but... Um, <laughs> um, it's a form of therapy, again. Um, you know, if I do anything... <laughs> I mean, I've got lots of big challenges and, pro and priorities as an incoming health secretary, obviously. But I'm going to do something about people affected by drug and alcohol abuse in this country as well. I'm going to support, support people. Sh people should not have their life ruined by addiction, and we've ig ignored it as a society for too long. I want to do something about it. <laughs> And Thank you. <laughs> John, can I ask you, has it affected the way you handle alcohol? I mean, do you sort of, do you worry that you might fall into that trap? Sort of sins of the fathers kind of thing, but that there might be some sort of, I don't know, genetic link or cultural link? It's a really good question, that is, because it's something I do ask myself sometimes. I'm not, I'm not a particularly big drinker. I mean, I, you know, in my 20s, I would, you know, um, first working in Westminster in politics, I suppose I would be drinking with all the other sort of researchers and so on. And these days, I'm not a, a big drinker at all. I can easily go for two, three, four months and never touch alcohol. Um, uh, so, but there are times when I do ask myself, you know, is this genetic? You know, perhaps if I've... You know, New Year's Eve or something like that, and you yeah. know, got a really. 
bad, bad, bad head the next, the next morning, I do ask myself, is it, was that just a sort of, you know, because it was a party or was there something else going on there? I don't know the answer, but... But then on the other hand, as I say, um, now, these days, I don't drink that often, really. I mean, um, I mean, I do have a drink. I'm not, not a Puritan, as it, as it were, but I can, I can easily go for three or four months and yeah. never touch a drop. But I do, ask that, I do ask myself that question, yeah. We'll go to some polling now that we've got from HuffPost with, in association with BMG Research, um, which should come up on the screen, which will sort of underline some of the points you've made about the, what the Tories have been doing. Um, now, we've got some stats there which suggest that actually lots of the things you would be responsible for, hospitals, GPs, um, things you wouldn't be responsible for like policing, uh, but social care, mental health, um, a lot of people in their daily lives feel that things have got worse. Um, given that there is clear from the public a feeling that under the Tories things have got worse when it comes to a lot of their public services, mm. do you think that m it's surprising, therefore, that you're not more ahead in the polls? Given that there's a lot of public dissatisfaction, would you normally expect Labour to be ahead? Well, I think that's an interesting question, and I think no one is quite clear what is happening with the opinion polls at the moment. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not one of these politicians who says, oh, the opinion polls are wrong. I'm not, that's not the point I'm making. I, I think people feel very unsure in the country at the moment. I'm not saying they feel... I'm not making some... Don't read into this some sort of political point that I'm trying to undermine the position of the party or anything like that. Not at all. I'm just trying to make a broader point in that I think people feel very conf uh, anxious in the country, anxious about how Brexit is going to play out and what that means, uh, 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 very unsure about what the right response is to some of these big challenges that we've got uh, from Brexit. Uh, uh, but what I would say, though, is that that polling is not surprising, and I think it does underlie some of the big shifts in the vote that we saw in the 2017 general election, where, let's be honest, you know, we started that general election with everybody assuming it was going to be a Theresa May landslide, and that was what the opinion polls were showing. And I think as the general election unfolded, you got a real sense that people were fed up of austerity economics, that, that people were fed up, if you worked in the public sector, of a public sector pay freeze, which has been squeezing your wages so that, you know, you have a nurse on the television telling Theresa May that she has to go to food banks and, and, and Theresa May just says we haven't got a magic money train. I think you know that people are getting fed up that uh, you know, their kids go to a local primary school and they're now getting letters from the primary school telling them we haven't got enough funds for pens and paper. Do you mind donating £10 a month or something? You know, people are getting fed up of, a, of an economy which is increasingly reliant on zero-hours contracts, temporary work, uh, uh, you know, pay freezes and so on. So, and I think, I think the challenge for Labour this week is to show that um, uh, uh, we have got answers to these questions. I think we have got answers. I think this week you'll see us um, preparing for government. Uh, next week you'll see Theresa May preparing for retirement, I think. Um, um, you had that uh, one prepared. Uh, eh? <laughs> you had that in your back pocket. What are, you saying? are you saying I'm not spontaneous? <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, 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 and I think once we get into a general election campaign, and again the national debate becomes about these issues, I'm absolutely convinced we can win. Absolutely convinced. I think we'll get a Labour government when that general election comes, whether it comes in the next few weeks, it, because checkers and Brexit and it all collapses all around Theresa May, or if it comes in the next, in the next few years. I think there is a hunger, a hunger for change. And also, you know, are people really sort of engaging with the cut and thrust, the, you know, the, the back and forth of politics um, at the moment, I don't, in, the, in the way they would in the general election campaign? You know, people do tend to tune out a little right. bit, and then they tune back in an election. Um, okay. One thing that people in Liverpool are very tuned in about is the, the um, Royal Liverpool Hospital yeah. delay. Now that's obviously become a victim of the Carillion collapse. Yes. Um, so there's lots of issues, certainly locally, where, where people have feeling the effect of a Conservative government. Um, but given all that, and given everything you've just said about the NHS and how important everything is, isn't it a bit odd in the 70th year of the anniversary of the NHS 
There is no NHS debate at Labour conference. You're relegated to the equalities section on Wednesday morning before I, Jeremy Corbyn. I, 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 equalities is very important. I don't, I don't consider myself a victim of relegation. <laughs> uh, 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 we'll have a big debate uh, on the NHS on Wednesday, which I'll be, I'll be opening the debate about uh, 9.05 a.m., I anticipate a full haul at that time <laughs> in the morning after uh, uh, um, uh, the NHS is a big issue for the Labour Party. We created the National Health Service 70, 70 years ago. We're very proud that we've created the National Health Service, the greatest engine for social justice we've ever seen in this country. Uh, and it was voted against by the Tories. It wasn't inevitable. They opposed it tooth and claw. Uh, so we will be celebrating uh, the 70 years of the NHS in that debate on Wednesday. I'll be opening it, I'll be uh, speaking about it. And uh, the reason it's in the, in the equalities debate is because we're so passionate about health inequalities. Yeah. Because look, health inequalities are getting wider and wider in the country. Life expectancy for the first time in 100 years has begun to stall. And indeed, in some of the poorest parts of the country, life expectancy is going backwards. You know, a third of children in this city of Liverpool will start school with some form of tooth decay. And if you were born in the very poorest parts of the country, a child born right now, like that, here, now, in Liverpool, in the poorest part, is likely, on average, to live nine years less than a child born right now in Surrey. And that child born right now in the poorest part of Liverpool, or the poorest part of Leicester, or the poorest part of Glasgow, or Manchester, or all the different areas of the country where we know deprivation uh, uh, stalks the land, that child is more likely to leave school obese is less likely to get the immunisations they're supposed to get, is more likely to be admitted to hospital for tooth decay or uh, oral, uh, oral disease problems, is more likely as an adolescent to need to turn to child and adolescent mental health services. If that child is very, very, very poorly, they are less likely to survive. And these health inequalities are getting wider in our society. So actually, you know, my big, big burning mission isn't just to sort of put the money into the NHS to recruit the staff, to end all the privatisation stuff and get us a public NHS back again. My big ambition is to start narrowing these health inequalities because if we're socialists, and I'm happy to use the word socialist, I've always described myself as a socialist, I'm not embarrassed by it. Uh, if we are, if we're really true to our values, our labour values, then we've got to do something about these health inequalities. Place of birth should not determine length of life, but it does. And that offends me, and I want to do something about it. Right. Can I ask you a bit about Brexit and the NHS? Mm. Now, obviously, that's looming for everybody. It's, a, it's a, very much a real issue. There's a lot of forecasts that the NHS is going to suffer in terms of staff who won't be coming here from the European Union. Um, what sort of reassurance can you offer voters on that? Well, I mean, this is a... Uh, I mean, <laughs> I was a passionate Remainer, I'm an internationalist, and I think we, you know, I campaigned for Remain, but Brexit really sort of hangs over the NHS like a sword of Damocles. Uh, you know, we've got the staff from the, from the European Union who work in our NHS and work in our social care sector, uh, nearly 200,000 of them. If they all walked out, the NHS and social care sector would collapse. We uh, export something like 40-odd uh, million packs of medicine every month to the EU, and we import 30-odd million packs of medicine every month from the EU. If we have uh, friction at the borders, we are going to have delays in getting access uh, to life-saving medicines and like insulin as well and so on, which is why the government are talking about stockpiling it. I mean, they never put that on the side of a bus, did they? Uh, 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 we're we're uh, a part of lots of different research uh, initiatives, Horizon 2020, other research initiatives where access to clinical trials across the whole of the European Union's uh, popula population base is absolutely crucial to ensure we're getting the, you know, we're developing the treatments of the future. Uh, and also, by the way, you know, the, people forget about this element, but a lot of the employment legislation, a lot of your protections in the workplace protect NHS staff. You know, if you if you're a nurse or you work in the care sector. Uh, the employment legislation about uh, moving and shifting, um, you know, um, objects and so on, and if you're moving and shifting people, you know, all the regulations around, around that, you know, about protections for your back and so on, if they're all out the window, that's also going to affect the health and well-being of our health and care staff. So, look, 
My priority as a, uh, uh, as a someone who aspires to be health secretary and is watching these developments is to make sure that a, whatever deal we get, and I'm not very confident about the, Theresa May's abilities of getting a deal, but certainly a deal that the Labour Party would get would have to be protect, protect all those different issues I've just mentioned, but and also crucially say, you know, protect the very fabric of the NHS as well. So we will not let the NHS be sold off and privatised to big American corporations, which is also a danger of, some, of what could happen in a, in a trade deal too. But so you'd protect, protect those EU nationals who are working in the NHS? Absolutely, absolutely protect them, guarantee their rights. And right. we'd want the NHS and social care sectors to continue to recruit. Right. I mean, this hostile environment sort of set of policies, which uh, Theresa May is so uh, uh, personally associated with, has been absolutely abysmal for the NHS. And there are still clinicians being turned down or being refused their rights to stay and work and care for our sick in this country because of some of these visa, visa uh, restrictions. I mean, the N NHS has been sustained for 70 years by the contribution of international medics, clinicians, nurses and staff. You know, we should not be putting barriers in the way, the way of getting the best staff to, to care for our sick and elderly in this country. On Brexit, I mean, you're a veteran of party conferences. Today, the party will be compositing a motion on Brexit. Yeah. Um, you've been in those meetings yourself in years mm -hmm. gone by. You know they're all about watering down things. They're all about smoothing the edges and making life easy for the leadership. Isn't that what's going to happen today, that there won't be a specific commitment to a people's vote under Labour Party? That's a very cynical interpretation of party democracy, <laughs> Paul. Um, but it's right, isn't it? Uh, no, it's most certainly not right. I'm not sure what is going to happen. Um, I presume there will be some uh, agreement to have a vote on Brexit uh, at the conference. I'm told that there's something like 200 or something uh, resolutions in um, on Brexit, um, uh, presumably calling for some sort of people's vote, I, I guess. They will all go into a meeting tonight. Uh, I'm not sure if they found a room big enough for them yet, <laughs> uh, but they'll all be in a meeting tonight and they will try and... Um, put, merge all their different points together into one huge um, monster resolution covering all the important issues that need that need to be that need to be covered. Uh, but I, I've been in those meetings. I mean, I remember a bit sitting in those meetings till three, four in the morning in the past. In previous roles that I've done, when I worked for Gordon Brown for many years, sort of, uh, they can be pretty heavy going these these meetings. And um, but actually, you get you know you say you know this is a way of sort of you know uh, you know pouring water on things and not, you know, you know to, some of these discussions that we've had in the past on these resolutions changed policy and changed, have changed people's lives. I mean, I remember being in these discussions till four in the morning, which, which agreed um, uh, things like um, uh, uh, the addition, the, 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 um, the adding of bank holidays to your paid, four weeks paid leave, that came about uh, from one of these, uh, from one of these discussions. I remember being in these meetings which have decided, um, to change what was then the Labour government's policy on earning link, earnings linking the basic state pension. We did that in one of those meetings. Um, I remember one of those meetings changing some of the um, ways in which what was then called the two-tier workforce when staff are tupid over and making sure there's more protections for tupid over staff. That was, a big, that was a big call of unison at the time about 10, 12 years ago. Again, that was one of these meetings that went on till you know, three in the morning but got hammered out at the end. So these meetings are very important. So would you personally like to see a firm commitment to a people's vote? I'm, I'm very content with the position of the party, which is the people's vote we want is a general election. That's the people's vote uh, uh, we want. And if the Theresa May doesn't get a deal, uh, or the, sorry, I beg your pardon, if the deal that she's offering does not get through Parliament, then I believe that you know, nothing should be on the table, and I think John uh, off the table, and I think John McDonnell and Keir Starmer have said nothing should be off the table, and I think that's the right position for us to be in at this stage. I've talked to some delegates here, and quite a lot of them are saying that it could be a vote winner if Labour enters a general election with a manifesto commitment to a, a referendum on a deal with Europe. Um, you would lose some of your core supporters who have voted in, on immigration, but you'd gain a lot more. W what's your reaction to that? Um, uh, could it be a vote when I'm not uh, I don't know because in a general election uh, other issues take over I mean Theresa May thought last year's general election was going to be about Brexit and it very quickly became about other issues and, I, and 
my experience, having worked on different general election campaigns, I've worked in some capacity at you know, a, a, a national level on every general election since 2001. General elections have a certain uh, rhythm, and the issues which the politicians think they're going to be about are not always the issues which they are about. So I'm not so sure whether that, that analysis okay. is correct. But, you know, well, who knows? That's the great thing about democracy. You don't know necessarily what's going to happen. And if, if there is, at some point, uh, a recommendation within the party, not necessarily this year, but in, in future, over the next year, that backs another referendum, do you think, in theory, that you could only have a referendum if one of the options is staying in the EU? That has to be on the ballot paper, if you're going to have a referendum. You can't just have a referendum on what shape of Brexit we have. Well, we're getting into hypotheticals. I know we are. Now, aren't we? And I used to, do, I used to brief politicians before they came and did these sorts of events and tell them never answer a hypothetical question. <laughs> <laughs> well, Len, Len McCluskey has, hans, has answered the hypothetical today, and he said it should be... He's a trade union general secretary, though, not a politician. <laughs> he said it shouldn't be on the ballot paper, staying well, in I the suppose EU. there is a bit of confusion about what actually would be on the ballot paper. I mean, people's vote are proposing a vote on the final deal, not, not a rerun of the referendum, as I understand yeah, it, yeah. but I may be wrong, there's different versions of it, I mean there's a sort of, there's a, I think there's a Justin Greening version which is about three, three or four three options. Three options, yeah, one of which would be staying in the EU. Yeah. Do you think, think that would be a bad I idea? That, I don't know if that would be a single transferable vote vote or whether it would be a uh, first past the vote, past the so you agree, with, you agree with Len McCluskey it sounds like, you can't go back, you can't undo that referendum, you can't say let's stay in the EU. As I say. Hi. Interesting hypothetical question. Okay. <laughs> now, brings me on to Labour Party itself. Um, mm. Now, what do you make of this plan uh, on MPs' reselection that uh, has been approved by the NEC yesterday about lowering the threshold? At the moment, people in the room will know, but not everyone will know, that at the moment, if a Labour MP wants to remain a Labour MP, uh, all they have to do to avoid an automatic contest is they have to get more than 50% of their, their branches in their constituency. Under this new rule, that would be lowered to 33% of local members would be all that would be required for an MP to face a, a, a challenge. What do you think about that, John? Um, is it a good idea? Is it heading the right direction? Do you think it's a needless distraction when we've got all these other big issues like the NHS and, and Brexit? Well, I've been sort of reluctant to engage in this debate so far because I'm an MP. I've been an MP um, for the last eight years or so, or seven or eight years. Um, when I stood again for the 2015 general election, I had to be reselected by my members. It was a reselection and it was mandatory. <laughs> uh, and if my members didn't want me, they could have got rid of me, as, as has happened in the past. I remember we were in Liverpool a few years ago, the good people of Liverpool uh, got rid of their sitting Labour MP Bob Waring and replaced him. Uh, there was an MP in Stockton who got deselected and replaced. There was an MP in Bolton about 20 years ago who was replaced. Uh, place. So I think some of this debate that you see on Twitter and so on, suggesting that it's, you know, MPs have jobs for life, isn't, it's not historically accurate. We've seen MPs get deselected by their local parties uh, in recent years, because it is possible to get deselected on, 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 even on the 50% trigger ballot. Now, it has changed. I think one of the things that, again, people need to appreciate in this, having now looking at the compromise proposal that the national executive have come up with, and I hope the conference votes for the national executive position, <coughs> is that there's a very subtle but I think quite significant change that an MP will have to get uh, so many branches of the constituency, but in an hour separate section has to get so many branches of the affiliated trade unions. Well, in the old system, uh, all your affiliates and trade uh, branches were together. I can understand why the National Executive feel they've had to propose this compromise, but it does look to me, looking at it, that does look like rather a um, uh, diminishing in the influence of the trade unions, actually. Yeah. Uh, because they're now in a separate section. Uh, and if the. Uh, so they don't. A, a trade union does not have the ability um, uh, to balance out the branches like it used to have. So the trade unions in order to, in the interests of party unity, have agreed, it would seem to me, to give up some of their, some of their influence. And the problem with, um, uh, uh, you know, the sort of, some of the other proposals that have been sort of floating around is that 
it's actually not what is on the what what was put about was not actually mandatory selection that we had in the 1980s. There's a misnomer that what is being proposed is the old system. It's not. In the old system, every single branch would be asked to nominate you as a sitting MP or someone else. And, and every affiliate to trade union would be asked to nominate you as a sitting MP or someone else. And then your general management committee would then say, we've had uh, 12 nominations for John Ashworth, We're going, you know, and that's the only person who's been nominated. Thank you very much. We're all very happy with that. Done. On the other proposal that's been put forward, it actually says each CLP will put forward a shortlist uh, of the assisting MP and interested candidates. So even if the good people of the Leicester South constituency Labour Party all agree that they want me to carry on as their Member of Parliament, they are obliged under that rule to put someone else on a shortlist against me and go, go to a ballot of all the members. That's not what we had in the 80s. That's a primary like they have in America. Now, it may be, if you want to make the argument for primaries, fine, Blairites used to make argu the argument for primaries. I used to argue against them. But that was what they, that's what they used to argue 10, 15 years ago. And that's what's being proposed. And, what's and the, the trade unions are not involved in that because, they're not, because they don't have any role in that process. So you're actually pushing the trade unions out and you're having a primary like the, the Democrats have, which is ironically what the Blairites uh, used, to, used to argue against. So as I say on these things, I've never moved. I've stayed the same. But people just move around me. But maybe that's politics in the Labour <laughs> right. Party. And do you think there's a wider point there, which is a lot of the trade unions think that momentum have somehow projected the and presented the trade unions as the enemy. As, in other words, yeah. it's about individualism rather than collectivism. I mean, some trade unionists are saying that they feel quite sore over this. I think selection. we've got to be very careful. that The trade unions founded the Labour Party 120 years ago or so. They've sustained the Labour Party throughout its history. We are a Labour Party. We are there to represent the interests of working men and women, yes, in the workplace and in the communities. And I've got to say, I think it's disappointing when we heard on the conference floor a few minutes earlier, people shouting shame on the trade unions. I'm a trade unionist. That's why we're the Labour Party. And I think we've got, I think we've got a compromise on the table. It's a compromise that has been supported by Jeremy Corbyn and supported by John McDonnell. It's a compromise that has been supported by the big trade unions. I think we need to unite around it now and focus on the real enemy, which is the Tories. And I hope we can get, on, go, get over that today. Now, can I mention um, the whole idea of a second female deputy, which again is being voted on yeah. today. Um, who'd be a good contender for that? <laughs> <laughs> Angie Rayner, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Dawn Butler? Why don't you, you mention them three? I don't know. <laughs> what, what? Um, they would all be very good contenders. Angela Rayner's great. She's a good friend of mine, good work, working class woman. Um, uh, uh, you know, trade unionist, former care worker. Uh, Angela Rayner's brilliant, um, but you know, is it going to go through? I'm sure they'll, if, they're, if they're, they're running for it, they'll probably make their announcements. They won't want me to uh, <laughs> announce it for them, but no, they're all good candidates. Um, and, and yesterday, Dawn create a bit, created a bit of a stir on the, in the women's conference. Um, now, a lot of Labour Party members agreed with what she said but some MPs didn't like what she said. I just wonder what you thought of it. She praised Liverpool for having a council <coughs> that stood up to Thatcher. Better to break the law than to break the poor. Was she, what, what do you think she was trying to get at there? And, and do you agree with that? Or do you think, I mean, some of your colleagues say that rewrites everything Neil Kinnock stood for about Militant. Well, I mean, Militant, who are now the Socialist Party, of course, are not, are not part of the Labour Party. And they don't, uh, you, know, they, uh, um, you know, they're opposed to, to what we are, Trying to do. It. I mean, uh, one of my old friends actually is from Liverpool, and his mum was a uh, worked for the local ed education authority and got one of those famous redundancy notices <laughs> in a taxi. So, uh, I I think Dawn is trying to make a broader point about campaigning against uh, Tory governments imposing austerity on working class communities and, and cities. Uh, but uh, you know, I don't think we're going back to the days of militant. You shouldn't be going back no, to those days. No, we, should, we shouldn't be, and I don't think... And illegal yeah. budgets? Well, well, John McDonald has told local authorities they can't set illegal budgets. It's actually in our Labour Party constitution yeah. somewhere that we can't set illegal budgets. So we're not in favour of illegal budgets. We're very clear and very firm in that. I mean, one of the first decisions that John McDonald made when he was the Shadow Chancellor, from memory, was to write to every local authority, every Labour group, and say you can't set illegal budgets. So, look, we are not going back to those days of, of militant and, hand, you know... And, 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 you know, calling Tory government's bluff by 
making all our uh, public sector employees redundant. Derek Hatton says he's going to apply to rejoin Labour. Is that a good idea? What would you do? Oh, he does this all the time, doesn't he? I mean, how many times has he said this? Would you be happy to have him in the party? He's not going to join the Labour Party. He just does this for publicity. Do you think you should be allowed in? Well, I mean, he's stood against... He's, stood for the, he's in the Socialist Party and all that. He's not in, our, he's not in the Labour Party, is he, so... OK. Um, on councils, um, the Democracy Review suggests directly elected council leaders. And a lot of local government people in Labour don't like the idea, think it could be illegal as well as wrong. What's your stance on that? Well, we elect... We have a party process for electing our mayors... Because we've got a mayor in Leicester, we've just been through a process to elect our, or reselect our mayoral uh, candidate. Again, it was a mandatory reselection of our mayoral candidate. Again, uh, showing that we do have <laughs> processes. Um, I, I'm not against having more democratic oversight of local authority leaders and labour groups. Now, if if it is illegal to directly elect a city a, a city council leader in that. Way. I mean, I'm not an expert on how this would work, by the way, but then obviously we don't, we're not going to do something which is illegal, but I don't think the principle of having more democratic oversight of local labour groups is a bad one, to be honest. But not a direct home of election for, for a council leader? I'm personally not against it, but, I'm but if it is illegal, then I'm not going to support something that's illegal. Right. I, mean, I just don't know enough about that aspect of local government sure. legislation to be able to judge whether it is illegal or not, but I, I think the principle of labour councils being accountable to the wider membership is something which we shouldn't be scared of. We should favour it. We've got another poll, a bit of our poll coming up here, which is that actually when it comes to the whole issue, which some people have been talking about, which is a new party in Britain, 58% of voters say they'd consider voting for a, a new political party, someone that represents them better. And when people are asked to define themselves, 42% define themselves as being the centre, only 30% on the left only 27% on the right. Do you think that somehow that tells you something about what's happening in politics right now, and that Labour has to respond to that kind of polling? I think you get the, these types of polls. Uh, I mean, there may well be some polling expert who completely shoots me down in flames, but my sort of hunch is that if you ask that, this type of question at any point in the last 20 years, you'd probably get similar numbers. I mean, that, I mean you know, up until the Liberal Democrats went into the Tory coalition, uh, and got, um, you know, obviously got smashed as a result of that in the subsequent general election. There was often polling which would suggest that, oh, if the Liberal Democrats could win, would you vote for them as a sort of centre party? And they'd obviously they'd always do very well in that sort of polling. So I don't, I think that is a version of that question. I think uh, would get similar uh, uh, results to that uh, anyway. But the reality is we have a first past the post system. All right, any centre party. Any break-off party that which has been whispered about and gossiped about on, on the, in, the, in the bar rooms of Westminster, and I've got no idea whether this is uh, going to come to anything, will not succeed. The SDP did not succeed. All it does is deny Labour the chance to form governments. So if you are genuine about wanting to change the country, if you are genuine about wanting to improve public services, if you're genuine about, about wanting to inject some, a greater degree of fairness in the, into the running of our economic affairs, then the only show in town is the Labour Party. Some sort of SDP sort of version of, or, or some sort of arrangement, a new alliance-style arrangement with the Liberals will not change the country. So, um, but who knows? Who knows what is going to happen? Right. OK, well, this is a perfect point at which to open it up to the audience, I think. Um, who wants to ask a question? Uh, chat there with the beard in the middle. That narrows it down. Um, <laughs> just a quick question, John. Uh, my name's Sean Walsh. I'm from Cancer Research UK. Um, pleased to hear your reflections around some of the challenges in workforce, which we know are causing real problems in terms of waiting times, diagnostic times, treatment times, but also the reason why we lag so far behind other comparable countries in terms of cancer survival rates. My question is a little broader around uh, local and public health funding, um, something we didn't really touch on in, in the discussion, but our interest in this is we know that four in 10 cancers are preventable through lifestyle changes, and yet we know at a local government level, 50% of local authorities are having to cut smoking cessation services. Yeah. 
And I'd like to understand your view on how we might address that in the future. Yeah. Shall I answer that straight yeah. away? Straight I mean, I think it's a great question because, you know, this, this point I made about health inequalities, uh, which is a real sort of driving passion of mine, is that, you know, we know that in the poorer, poorer parts of the country that uh, uh, you're more likely to uh, die from uh, various cancers, you're more likely to die as well from stroke, cardiovascular disease and so on. We know that in poorer parts of the country that smoking is still too prevalent with all the devastating consequences that, have, that has for lung cancer uh, and so on. So public health being cut back, smoking cessation services being cut back, it, not only do I think it is utterly uh, disgraceful, but I think it's entirely counterproductive as well. Because all we are actually doing is we're slashing in public health budgets, or the government is slashing public health prevention budgets, and just storing up long-term problems for the wider NHS. So what is our response? Well, we want to uh, radically expand public health and prevention budgets. We want to put the investment into smoking cessation services. I've spoken about alcohol and drug treatment services as well but as well as across the whole of the public sector workforce. But it's also why I'm so passionate about child health too. You know, I've talked about we should have an ambition in this country to have the healthiest children in the world because we know that when you look at our child health ratings in this country and compare us to other sort of equivalent um, Western economies, whether it's obesity or uh, um, <coughs> immunizations or, or, uh, or, or support for for mums with breastfeeding and so on, we are so far down all the sort of league tables, if you like, if you compare us to Scandinavia or to Canada or whatever. And we know that a child who is obese is likely to grow up to be an adult who is obese and is likely in turn to therefore develop lots of different problems, including cancer. So uh, uh, a big emphasis on improving child health and well-being, a big emphasis on public health and prevention, yes, but also dealing with some of these staffing and resource issues now as well. Right, let's get another question. Is there any that lady at the back standing up? I'm Laura Davis, um, candidate for Shrewsbury and Atcham. I'm also a doctor working in A&E in Shropshire hospitals. Um, I was really glad when you were talking about CAMS and access to mental health. A, a patient who particularly stuck in my mind was a young lady who came into A&E with her mum. She actually had something completely unrelated wrong with her, but I said, oh, you're getting a day off school today, and her mum went, well, no, she hasn't been for nine months. She'd wanted to be a vet. She hadn't been to school for nine months, she was 15, because she'd been waiting 15 months for an appointment with CAMS. As a society, we had basically picked her up and thrown her on the scrap heap. 15 is about the, the most important age, educationally and determines your future. And we have to challenge that. We've been trying to recruit psychiatrists for years yeah. in Shropshire, and it's just not happening. What do you think Labour can actually do in actual nuts and bolts terms to get the skills that we need, and more crucially, put them where we need them? Well, um, uh, I mean, can you explain what CAMS is as well? Yeah, I mean, yep. CAMS is, uh, I mean, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. It right. is the... Uh, the mental health service to support um, uh, you know, uh, children and adolescents and uh, uh, young people with, who have mental health problems and, and conditions and there are various different tiers of it depending on the severity of uh, uh, what you are facing but the problem is in many parts of the country because the wider NHS is under such pressure CAMS budgets, child and adolescent mental health budgets have actually been cut the money that they're supposed to get has had to be shifted into the day-to-day -day running of the, local, of the local NHS. And we have a huge, huge crisis uh, uh, facing our, 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 our young people. We're seeing huge increases in uh, 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 young, young women, uh, um, adolescent young women self-harming and so on. We know that if you have a, an eating disorder, you are often pushed from pillar to post, sometimes sent hundreds and hundreds of miles away because there aren't the beds available in your local area, which in turn, uh, in many cases, uh, affects or, or reinforces some of your mental health uh, issues that you have. It certainly, certainly isn't conducive to helping you get through uh, what is a very serious uh, moment of crisis in your life. And I look at it like this way, look, right, we quite rightly as a society invest in, in, 
early years, I don't think we invest enough, but we do. We quite rightly do. Because at the point when you are a baby and a under five is the point when you are perhaps at your most vulnerable in life. So it's appropriate that the state invests. I think we should do more with Sure Start and help for mothers and expanding health visiting services and things like that. But people understand that as a concept. But the next stage in your development, when you are most vulnerable, is it when you are a teenager. And yet it's the area of the NHS which has been neglected for years and years and years, has been underfunded and has been cut back. So I think we have to reverse that. We've got to start putting more funding in. We've got to stop, stop the, the, uh, the cuts to local budgets. We've got to start ring-fencing budgets properly, but really investing in them. But it also means we've got to recruit the staff because this point about staffing, and I said it affects every sector, it's really affecting the CAM sector at the moment as well. We're not training enough. Uh, psychiatrists and specialist mental nurses and specialist mental mental health care assistants and the whole on the whole uh, the whole range a whole different team of specialist staff who work in that area. So it's a huge it's a huge area priority for us, and you're right to raise it. Okay, another question. Um, chat there in the in the middle row. Yeah. Hi, John. Uh, Dan Bloom from the Mirror. Uh, you spoke very proudly earlier about how some of these late-night meetings at conference <laughs> were used to improve workers' rights and give people bank holidays and change the world out there. And then we went on for 10 or 15 minutes to talk about how they've been used for internal labour machinations. Now, does it make you sad or upset to compare what's being talked about now with what was happening maybe 10 years ago? And if so, who should take the blame for that? Well, we always have uh, discussions about our internal democracy uh, in the Labour Party. It's nothing new. Uh, I mean, Tony Blair introduced um, all kinds of changes in his first couple of conferences. I mean, if you remember, MPs used to be able to stand for the constituency section of the National Executive Committee. You know, and it used to be, you know, big battles to see if sort of... Um, you know, Robin Cook would top the poll, or Jack Straw, or Mo Molan, and Ken things like that. And Ken Livingstone. There was one year, famously, when Ken Livingstone was was battling for a spot against Peter Mandelson and all that. So, so, so Tony Blair got rid of all that and put the put put um, uh, you know stopped MPs standing apart from the, a, a smaller dedicated MP section. So, so that was a big constitutional change. Gordon Brown introduced constitutional changes to the Labour Party. Ed Miliband introduced, and we've always had debates about our internal structures. Uh, in the Labour Party, we rather enjoy it. I don't know if, you ever, I don't know if you've ever had the, the privilege of attending a general management committee uh, meeting, but we do like to discuss these matters. So it's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not unusual. And it is possible to talk about democracy in the Labour Party and at the same time talk about the issues that are going to affect people's lives. But what I don't want is the debate around democracy in the Labour Party to spill over into... Uh, uh, a kind of uh, a running, a running. So we should conduct our discussions in a comradely fashion, uh, and a spirit of tolerance and respect. And when we've got an agreement, let's move on to talk about the issues which affect people's lives. And I think it is possible to do that. A mandatory reselection. I mean, people are still calling for it on the floor today. You think that's a, a distraction? And what would happen if it went ahead? If there wasn't a genuine open selection in every? Every seat. But, it, but it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not going to go ahead, is it? We're going to, I don't think. I think we're, the, the National Executive have proposed a compromise. Um, and I've been around long enough to know that uh, when the, you know, if the NEC are proposing something which is backed by all the major trade unions, that will usually go, get through the conference. This chap here has had his hand up for a while. Yeah, Andy Walker from Bury North Constituency Labour Party. Just coming back to the alcohol issue that you mentioned, what's your view on those professionals who came out, I think it was just last week, and criticised Public Health England for being too close to the alcohol industry. Um, and, and, and some people suggested that it echoed the role of the tobacco industry. And we've obviously got a Tory government at the moment that via their so-called responsibility deal uh, in, in terms of working with organisations to highlight harm, which you know many people would say has failed. Would you, as Health Secretary, actually have a different type of relationship with the alcohol industry and make it clear that they are responsible in many ways for some of the harms that are actually being caused to people across the country? Good question. Uh, and simple answer is yes. And I think Public Health England, who did this deal with the Drink Aware campaign, uh, uh, were ill-advised to do that. Because a lot of the advice that Drink Aware put on their uh, 
literature and promotional materials um, is contested uh, by um, uh, academics in the public health field. And I think, I, I'm sure from the best of intentions, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not one of these people who believes in sort of conspiracies and so on, uh, so I'm sure Public Health England were acting in the best of intentions, but I think uh, they were mistaken. And I think, uh, uh, and I did criticise them, so I've agreed with the various different academics and public health, public health experts who came out and criticised that link-up as well. And that so would Labour put, sorry, through the chair, would Labour put more money into public campaign information? Oh, absolutely. We, absolutely. We, we've hugely got to do it. And you, you, you'd stop that kind of deal with the drugs oh, industry? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah no the lady there has been ha had a hang up for a while. Uh, Charlotte Patterson, Bristol West CLP. Um, hi, Charlotte. I understand in June that you had a very successful meeting with NHS campaigners and the uh, authors oh, yes. of the NHS reinstatement bill. And uh, I was delighted to hear that at that meeting uh, you suggested that the Labour leadership was fully behind developing a new mm. bill along the principles of the NHS reinstatement bill, which would most importantly, be uh, presented in the first Queen's speech mm. of a new Labour government. And I think that cheered a lot of us up who wanted a really firm commitment that Labour not only wanted to do something, but was actually going to manage to do it. So I'm interested to hear how that is progressing, yeah. that bill. Um, I know there was some idea that we might have a first draft by the end of this year, but um, how's it going? Yeah, so we're in discussions. This is about, um, essentially, uh, uh, getting rid of the Lansley Act, uh, and in the, the, the sort of the invoke phrase at the moment is reinstatement, but it's essentially getting back to uh, structures in the NHS which are about a public NHS so you can end privatisation, so you have sort of end this sort of uh, quite offensive situation, which I think it is, of contracts being constantly tendered out and handed out to, uh, I think, well, I think a very poor quality providers now of healthcare, and there's lots of evidence of this. I mean, you've got a situation where, uh, uh, um, you, know, you, you know, you've seen various um, GP out-of-hours contracts have had to come back in-house. Um, you've seen in Sussex a patient transport contract was, was outsourced uh, to a firm which, which then had to, um, uh, uh, a firm which didn't actually own any of its own uh, ambulances uh, and had, didn't invest properly in the IT system. The patient transport staff went for eight weeks without wages. People were left stranded on their doorstep waiting for dialysis appointments and chemotherapy appointments uh, because this contract was <coughs> in shambles and it had to come back in-house. Um, you've seen examples of outsourcing going wrong. When Carillion had a cleaning contract, I think, at Nottingham, they left infectious waste flowing through a children's ward in the, the hospital in uh, Nottingham. There's, 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 there's examples like this all over the country. <coughs> and so I think the evidence now is overwhelming that it's not in the interest of patients and nor is it in the interest of taxpayers. So we want to end all this privatisation. And actually, isn't it absolutely offensive that if a firm doesn't win a contract, they sue the NHS? That's what happened with Virgin Care. They sued the NHS when they didn't win a children's health contract. So we're going to bring all that to an end. So we're, so we're working on plans for how we do that, what are the changes, how we, how we bring forward the relevant reinstatement legislation. We're having discussions with experts in the field because we, we want that to be one of our priorities, our, our pro health priorities when we get into government. And are you going to tear up the current system of uh, local um, CCGs? Are you going to... Well, we want to get rid of what we call the purchase of provider split or the internal market. You know, <coughs> you know we want to we get back to a system where you have proper planning and partnership at a local level, where, where you've got you know, a hospital working with uh, uh, your local community health services, working with local mental health services, working with local ambulance trusts. You bring them all together. Actually, there are, some, there are lots, of, there's lots of think tanks now um, arguing for that as well. They could call them district health authorities, but they don't, of course. <laughs> That's perhaps a too retro phrase. But you know, we do want to we want to get back to a more traditional setup because we don't think the sort of privatisation agenda. Are you committed to a new NHS bill being part of the new? Yes, we will have an NHS bill. Yeah. Yeah. Right. One final question. This chap here has had his hand up for a while. Hi, John. Uh, Adam Payne from Business Insider. Uh, when you spoke about uh, the NHS and Brexit, you listed uh, numerous things which a Labour government would preserve yeah. in negotiations. So frictionless borders, so medicines can be transported freely, research programmes, workplace rights, yeah. etc. But the only way available that we can see to protect all of these things is to stay in a single market. Now, Labour voted against the EEA 
it wants to leave the single market in its current form. So speaking on behalf of a government in waiting, you could be government in the next few months based on the current instability. Can you just clarify what your policy is on this? Because looking at what <coughs> we've said so far from various shadow ministers, it looks like you want to keep all of the benefits and privileges of the single market, but perhaps not all the obligations. And one could argue that's just as have your cake and eat it as what the Conservatives are putting forward. So I were able to shed a bit more light on what Labour's Brexit policy is in regards to the single market. Well, well as you know, we've said we wanted to remain in a, cost, a customs union, but the issue is the single market is some of the obligations which you've, which you've rightly identified or alluded to in your question that we would have to adopt. And arguably, part of the reason why people rejected the European Union is because not everybody is happy with adopting those obligations. So we believe we're going to have to negotiate a deal, but I think we can get, we, I think we can get to a better place than the government have in the negotiations. Um, but our policy is not pure membership of the single market because some of those obligations are ones which we don't think the British people would, would uh, tolerate. Right, I'm afraid that we're going to have to stop there because we've run out of time. So, but I'd like to thank you all for your questions and I'd like to thank you all for coming and for tuning in on Facebook Live. And most of all, I'd like to thank John for giving us so much time. Thanks very much. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.